Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. You are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard, and this is pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks. So, as I said, if this guy only has $6 billion, he wouldn't be throwing around $15 million to one candidate. All right, it goes on to say there's an estimate of $6 billion, but I have talked to people who think it's actually quite a bit higher than that. One reason is that he has been incredibly adept at finding clever ways to limit his tax exposure. Those investments in Facebook, in Palantir, Palantir was funded by the CIA money via InQtel, the venture arm of the CIA, in which is... Uh, Palantir is embedded in all these government agencies. We've covered that before. And uh, some others were made through his investing vehicle known as a Roth IRA that was originally intended for middle-class taxpayers. Through some very clever tax planning, Thiel has managed to stash up billions of dollars in his tax-free account. So, see, that's the kind of stuff that he is doing to shield and hide uh, some of his money. More power to him on that front. Any chance you have at keeping the IRS out of your uh, business's uh I commend you on that, but what they don't mention in this article, folks, is that while Peter Thiel is stashing his money away and getting around the IRS, his company Palantir, right there mentioned in this answer, which would have been a good place for this author to insert it, is that Palantir signed a $100 million contract under Donald Trump in 2018. Palantir was originally created... Uh, as I said, with CIA money via the venture arm InQtel for the purpose of hunting down terrorists via their financial transactions. And now Palantir is inside of the IRS with this $100 million contract. The last I looked at, it was a $100 million contract for the purpose of tracking you down by your financial transactions. Not only that, they have the right to look at your phone records, your social media posts, and other data So I guess in the end, we are the terrorists, folks. We are the terrorists. The Palantir is hunting down. So Peter Thiel's company is working with the IRS to harass you, uh, while at the same time, he is using all of these loopholes to protect his money. Unbelievable racket, is it not, folks? 
Peter Thiel is a smart guy. Meanwhile, he wants to push for a dictator king to rule over you. Underneath his technocracy, which will be run by AI, AI like Palantir, which is going to be knocking at your door uh, with an IRS agent soon. It goes on to say, uh, when that story that he used Roth IRAs to massively lower his taxes broke, there was an outrage at somebody who had made so much money in America was not contributing to the national purse. Do you think he cared? The author says some of the ideology that motivated PayPal and the motives uh, and that motivates a lot of this crypto stuff that has happened since is all about going beyond nations it's about this idea that individuals should have more power than nations and should be able to basically do whatever they want it's about undermining the national interest and making sure they don't contribute to it so first off there's so many contradictions in the way that the author looks at this but at the same time the way that Thiel operates because if Thiel was helping create PayPal to eventually lead to crypto and we know he's instrumental in crypto through his uh, one of his henchmen that created Ethereum and that is to undermine the national interest the nation state then how would Peter Thiel be against the idea of globalism, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, and be for nationalism? Because if he's for nationalism, but then he also is a libertarian who's for open borders, uh, but then he wants to also be an isolationist, how does all this work together, folks? It can't come together. See, the idea is to undermine the idea of a nation state to then topple the at least the illusion of a constitutional republic in order to bring in a worldwide technocracy, which is the same thing that Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum are on board with, even though Peter Thiel claims to be on the outs with the World Economic Forum. You can see how all this comes together because a worldwide technocracy run on an international central bank digital currency undermines the nation state only to erase the idea of the national government and create this one world system with a free flow of immigration and people but they would all be operating under the prison planet technocracy you see how that all comes together it's slick folks they are slick this guy thought this out i i don't know if there's anyone else out there that are putting all the pieces of this together But I think we're getting close. Uh, It's making a lot of sense, but you have to read from all these different sources to really get a good grasp on what he's doing. And then you have to be aware of the misdirection in articles like this. Or this author just doesn't know. They might not know or realize this because they're only investigating this from, say, a liberal viewpoint instead of trying to see this uh, from all directions. But yes, so you have him undermining this national interest, which would erase the nation state to bring in a one world government, which is globalism, free flow of the people. It will all operate under a one world government. So he's not returning uh, power uh, to individuals. The individuals become the slaves of the technocratic system. It says, do you see Thiel as an outlier among his tech brethren or as an exemplar? It says, the conventional wisdom is Thiel is an outlier. He's like the one conservative guy in this relatively liberal industry. He is anything but a conservative. It goes on to say, I think that is basically wrong. Many of the things he believes are reflected in the actions and behavior 
of many of his peers. Yes, they may have some disagreements. Many of his peers may vote for Democrats, but the idea that companies should basically be able to do whatever they want, that democracy isn't the most important value, these things are reflected in the decisions and actions that many Silicon Valley companies are making, even Silicon Valley companies that are run by ostensibly liberal progressives, right? So I don't know, I didn't read this book, But it'd be interesting to know if this author figures out that the reason why he's seeing people that supposedly ally with, you know, liberal progressivism or people that claim to ally with conservative libertarianism like Peter Thiel, why at the end of the day they believe that the companies they're running and Silicon Valley as a whole should be able to do whatever they want is because they are in a partnership with the government, a public-private partnership in which the outsourcing of the governance of the people that live under that government are being run by the so-called private sector through the technology, right? That is the technocracy, folks. See, it, it, it all comes together. It goes on to say, in the beginning of the book, you paint a portrait of Thiel as a bullied child. Other kids put for sale signs in his yard and then ask when he was leaving and so on. Was that the cradle of his reactionaries? I think he was bullied as a child, and I think that it's not surprising that somebody who maybe had a tough time navigating a place like Stanford would develop a strong Uh, revulsion to the idea of universities like Stanford and would undertake a project to replace or critique critique these universities. Theo famously funds a fellowship where he encourages promising young people to start companies instead of going to college, and he's been a prominent critic of colleges. But he's also, but he's only a halfway critic. He says in a thousand different ways that Stanford is worthless, but he keeps teaching classes at Stanford. He keeps hiring Ivy League graduates. Correct. And at the same time, he pays these kids to leave and run these startup companies under his incubator, and then he has the first chance to come in and make an investment and then own these kids. That's what he's doing, folks. Goes on to say, most, it's basically Hitler Youth, Theo Youth Program is what we'd call it. It goes on to say, most of your sources are anonymous. Why do you think people who spoke to you spoke to you? It says Thiel's pretty unique in that he was involved in this elaborate and secretive litigation campaign that resulted in the destruction of a pretty substantial media outlet when he secretly funded Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker Media, which resulted in this roughly $100 million judgment. So I would talk to people and they would be like, quote, I'm a little afraid of him, end quote. I wouldn't really know what to say because I think there's actual reason for people to be afraid of Peter Thiel. Okay. Few more here, folks. It says, are you personally worried? He said, I'd be lying if I said that Thiel's litigation against Gawker didn't weigh in on me. And I think you'd be foolish to not think about that. That said, it's not productive to be afraid. Now, I agree, but maybe part of this is uh, misdirection, sort of propaganda to get people like me to be afraid of Peter Thiel or Mike Moore because we syndicate our podcast through pain.tv slash gold. But, you know, at the end of the day, I've never really been afraid. I know there's a couple hot topics that you can't discuss publicly or you'll be censored and shut down, even though some of those I want to get into myself. But 
I, I, those things, I, if you get shut down, then what's the point? I mean, if Peter Thiel wanted to sue a little outfit like us, it would probably make us grow. So come on us, Peter Thiel. Instead, come on the show and let's talk about the technocratic transhumanism that you're pushing onto the globe under the guise of being a contrarian, conservative, libertarian with a, a heterogeneous movement. Oh, that's Peter Thiel for you. No, I don't. I haven't really worked on a Thiel impression. It goes on to say, Thiel has been right a lot. I wonder if there's a bit of you thinking, quote, if he's been right about these things, what should I be looking for now? The author says, recently he gave a speech where he, discuss, uh, where he dissed Bitcoin, which was a weird thing. And, and I think we covered that here, folks. If somebody who played a big role in the beginning of digital money is suddenly saying that maybe crypto is bad for the interests of the United States, we should pay attention. There's an extent to which he's a great uh, prognosticator, a great futurist, but he's also a marketer of himself, and he's been very good at accentuating the calls that have been right and playing down the calls that have been wrong. And one of the reasons why I believe that happened with Bitcoin is because he is behind Bitcoin's biggest competitor, Ethereum. Goes on to say, you note that he has funded two senators, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, and is now funding two more candidates. Do you worry he'll wield outsized power uh, over government? The author says, I have to say I worry less about the grandstanding of a handful of senators connected to Thiel than I do about the effect of Thielism on the culture. When you combine the hostility to democracy and institutional norms with the bankroll of a billionaire, you can potentially do some damage. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting for us to see if we could get this author. My guess is he's too big, but maybe I can have Mike Moore reach out to him because I want to know. And I, with the baby coming, I'm not going to have time to read this book. If anybody read this book, please reach out to me at goldatpain.tv. But it'd be interesting to know if this author has figured out uh, that Peter Thiel is trying to work in the idea of this technocratic system of which, because he's invested in so many companies, he will have basically a seat on the board of directors, if not be the CEO of the technocracy himself, sort of a shadow CEO. All right, folks, when we get back from this break, I am going to show you, uh, we're going to jump, as I said in the beginning of the show, but I'm going to explain to you this idea of unitary executive theory. And this is very important because as we get back to Curtis Yarvin tomorrow and we further explore the concepts, the ideology that he has been sharing with Peter Thiel on how to anoint a technocratic monarch a king of the technocracy this idea of unitary executive theory is going to come into play and i don't think anyone has talked about this yet ladies and gentlemen i am dustin gold with the dustin gold standard i'll be right back right here on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Ping.tv slash gold. You know, one of the crazy parts about this, folks, 
is that Peter Thiel was one of the biggest, not the first investor in Spotify. And now Spotify owns the syndication software that we have to use. So I don't know, folks. We are operating in... uh, in some crazy times, you know, battling the technocrats that own the platforms in which you have to rely on in order to get your message out, to expose, to educate people on the very technocrats. I mean, we're fighting a war on their battlefield, but it is what it is, and we just do what we have to do, folks. So eventually, I don't know. I've been starting to have some talks with Mike Moore. We're talking about some strategies. But just to let you guys know, I mean, eventually, if the consolidation of the podcast market continues to happen, there may be a time that we're only over at pain.tv slash gold. So I know, folks, I know it's a few dollars a month or whatever, but uh, it it may be the only way that this is allowed to continue. I, I would have to venture to guess that within a couple of years, just like they do with YouTube, where they're constantly shutting people down, that podcasts will start to be shut down at a higher level as well. All right, let me let me show you this because this is really important. Um, so we got Blake Masters out of the way. Uh, I wanted to do that for you because we know Blake Masters is inspired by Curtis Yarvin. Uh, we know that Blake Masters obviously is the backing of Trump. We know that Blake Masters is the protege of Peter Thiel at the highest, highest levels, okay? And now we have some more information uh, on Peter Thiel. We have this book that was co-written by Blake Masters and Peter Thiel, uh, Zero to One. Many of you have probably read it, but advocates for this idea of a dictator inside of a company. We'll get into that a little bit more in the future. And that this is what this Yuval Noah Harari of the new right of this uh, heterogeneous movement that Peter Thiel talks about, the gang of circus freaks that has become the so-called conservative movement, uh, is running around and, and will be pushing this idea, I think, of the rise of the king. You know, many, many actually advocated for something similar. I just don't think they had... I don't think the narrative was shaped yet, but that's basically what this idea of Trump under QAnon, he was going to rise to power, he was going to arrest everybody. Um, you know, we were all on board with it, but we didn't understand what was actually behind it. I think we're starting to put the pieces of this together. Now, I'm back at this Vox article. I'm not going to read from this right now, but I just want to remind you uh, the ideas behind Yarvin's plan, his very detailed plan. So, First, he wants, and he, let's just call it Trump, because he's saying he'd love to see Trump do this. And we know Trump is at least back in the game. We don't know if he's technically running. Um, and again, to me, elections don't matter. This is just part of the sales campaign. But he wants Trump to campaign on this idea and to win, all right, so that he has a you know, mandate from the people to move forward into a position of rising as a monarch, as a king. And then he wants him to purge the federal bureaucracy and create a new one. And the idea was to fire everyone inside of government, have these specially selected people that would come in and replace them. He wants him to ignore the courts, effectively making the judicial uh, branch of government irrelevant. And as I said along the way, where is the answer to what happens to at least the illusion of due process? He wants him to 
Uh, Co-op Congress, the idea is to basically install all these people like Blake Masters and J.D. Vance into positions, but then effectively render the legislative branch of government you know, ineffective, you know, erase it. So the idea, the illusion of your representative government is then gone, okay? He wants him to centralize the police and government powers. So what he wants Trump to do is to take all of the local police and to centralize them under federal command, basically a federal police force, and then uh, abolish state and local governments. So now you just have one giant federal government overseeing the entire country at this point with all the police concentrated under the power of the king. So everyone answers to the king. Then shut down elite media and academic institutions. So he wants him to shut down all the news media, which you know, effectively is run out of Operation Mockingbird, the government anyway, and then all the academic institutions, all the universities that are funded by the government anyway. And then basically have an app where Trump could command the people to turn out, like in January 6th fashion, anytime anyone in the government is refusing to enact the policies of the king, of which he tells you will come from the will of the people, which he does not explain up to this point in the article. And he says we will do this basically using state emergency powers. And so the state emergency powers come out of as I said, we saw them tested under COVID land, the high school theater production by Trump. All right. The ability to even authorize at best untested vaccines uh, on human beings. Right. So we saw a lot of the state emergency power tested under Trump. Now, I mentioned this yesterday and the day before, so I wanted to bring it up for you uh, just so you could start thinking about this. Uh, before we get to the next show. But this is a piece from jwjusticejournal.com. This is George Washington University Pre-Law Student Association, the Justice Journal. It says, Vice President Dick Cheney's ascent to power under President George W. Bush appeared to grant him the powers and privileges of the presidency. This supposition was depicted in 2018's feature film, Vice. Uh, If you haven't seen that, check it out. It's done by the same director who, uh, Adam McKay, who did uh, The Big Short, if you've ever seen that. I'll talk a little bit more in depth about that as well uh, tomorrow. It says, the film presents a multitude of real-life events, political jargon, and legal terminology. One example of this was the repeated use of the term, quote, unitary executive authority. End quote. Unitary executive theory, I'm sorry. End quote. According to the Yale Law Journal, the unitary executive theory holds that, quote, the executive is headed by a single person, not a collegial body, and that single person is the ultimate policy maker with all others subordinate to him, end quote. In other words, the president's power is restricted only by the United States Constitution, while Congress has little to no check on the White House. This has led to a fierce debate that questions the extent of presidential power. Despite this, Dick Cheney and his staff drafted memos 
that drew on years of judicial uh, jurisprudence to justify their actions. The effects of the unitary theory could be seen in full force after the 9-11 attacks when the Bush administration orchestrated many questionable uh, acts under the veil of national security. There are several judicial precedent that are cited to provide validity to the claims of the unitary executive theory. The case Myers versus United States was brought to the United States Supreme Court on December 5th, 1923. In this case, a postmaster was removed by the president without the approval of Senate. According to precedent, quote, postmasters of the first, second, and third classes shall be appointed and may be removed by the president by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, end quote. The Supreme Court questioned whether or not the 1876 federal statute restricted the president's constitutional powers. On October 25, 1926, the court came to the conclusion that the law did restrict the president's powers. The court further argued that the founders drafted the Constitution as vesting in the president alone the power to remove officers. Another case that was dealt with executive privilege is United States v. Nixon, argued on July 8, 1874. In the aftermath of the Watergate scandal, there was a significant amount of evidence to suggest that President Nixon was complicit. When subpoenaed, he resisted by providing edited versions of the tape recordings. President Nixon wanted to quash the subpoena because he believed he had the authority to do so under his executive privilege. In the opinion of United States v. Nixon, the court stated that, quote, President's counsel, as we have noted, reads the Constitution as providing an absolute privilege of confidentiality for all presidential communications. It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is, end quote. This means that they do not agree Uh, That means they do agree that there are executive privileges. However, in this particular case, they felt it did not apply. John Yu, Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of the Legal Counsel of the U.S. Department of Justice, served in the Bush administration from 2001 to 2003. Yu was an early supporter of the unitary executive theory. He has gone on record stating that, quote, we are used to a peacetime system in which Congress enacts the laws, the president enforces them, and the courts interpret them. In wartime, the gravity shifts to the executive branch, end quote. Now, remember, folks, this is me speaking. What did Donald Trump keep saying during COVID? We are fighting a war against an invisible enemy. This is a war against an invisible enemy. COVID is an invisible enemy, right? So under wartime, then the executive can gain all of this power, right? The gravity shifts to the executive branch. And so you have the state of emergency. You have Yarvin calling for doing all of this under a state of emergency, It goes on to say this legal philosophy coupled with being a phone call away from the president foreshadowed events soon to come in Middle East. Another important member of Vice Cheney's staff was David Addington, who served as the vice president's chief of staff. He shared Yu's philosophy on executive power during wartime. Both Yu and Addington helped draft memos that utilized 
the unitary executive theory on behalf of Dick Cheney to allow the president to wield unchecked power over the military. Let me see here, folks. It says, although the president is the commander-in-chief, there are restrictions placed on his military authority. However, the unitary executive theory would allow President Bush to expand his powers during times of war, which was observed after 9-11. Also observed during COVID land, the high school theater production. According to the American Constitution Society, the unitary executive theory allows the president to control military force, the detention and interrogation of prisoners, extraordinary rendition and intelligence gathering. President Bush also utilized aggressive signing statements, which granted him the ability to expand presidential power. This allowed President Bush to interpret the Constitution, quote, in a manner consistent with his constitutional authority to supervise the unitary executive branch, end quote. Many questioned the extent to which President Bush expanded presidential power. Journalist Scott Horton stated that, quote, we may not have realized it, but in the period from late 2001 to January 19, 2009, this country was a dictatorship, end quote. Being able to bypass Congress and implement a wide range of policies with little to no congressional approval made it look like he could practically do whatever he wanted. Although the aggressive use of the unitary theory has not been in full effect since the early 2000s, it has resurfaced in mainstream politics. The newly appointed Justice Kavanaugh finds the unitary executive theory necessary in specific cases. In his dissent in PHH Corporation v. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, he writes that, quote, the Constitution lodges all executive power in the hands of the president, end quote. The case revolved around Congress forming the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to prevent the reoccurring problems that led to the 2008 housing market crash. The CFPB structure is led by a single director who could only be removed for a, quote, good cause, end quote, like insufficiency and neglect of duty, but not only disagreement. Justice Kavanaugh believes that this is within the president's authority to remove executive heads, although the U.S. appeals court did side with the CFPB, Justice Kavanaugh now takes that same philosophy with him to the Supreme Court. And this finally ends with, for years, the unitary executive theory has been at the crux of debates that question the extent of executive power. Many believe that it implies a situation where the president is in a position to commit gross abuses of presidential power. Others believe that it is necessary for there to be a strong unitary executive, especially during wartime. Because of this, they admire the unitary theory. President Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney utilized the theory and justified its use with years of jurisprudence. The unitary executive theory is still in the Department of Justice records, which means it can still be cited at any time. The unitary executive theory has given the president the means necessary to bypass Congress and wield immense power, and history shows just how all-encompassing that power really is. Folks, there is so much that comes out of this. Don't think for one moment that Curtis Yarvin and extending over to Peter Thiel 
that they have not studied unitary executive theory because to do what they're talking about, they would have to use unitary executive theory. And we will eventually look into this and see if unitary executive theory was used at all during COVID land, the high school theater production, because if it was, if it was, then Donald Trump, whether he knew it or not, I don't care if you like him, you trust him, you think he was a useful idiot, you think he was a Trojan horse, it does not matter that under his presidency, unitary executive theory was tested to the fullest degree. And that would be the test case that allows for what will be the next phase, which is not the overthrowing of the bureaucratic state or the deep state. It will be the installation of the technocratic transhumanist regime concentrated under the power or at least under the illusion of a king, of a monarch who was handed the mandate of the people to tear down the constitutional republic, to throw the constitution and the Bill of Rights out the window, to erase our history and replace it replace it with a fascist communist technocracy run by a shadow puppet named Peter Thiel and possibly coming out of the private side of this, a rise of a technocratic king named Elon Musk. So you may see Donald Trump pushing these concepts from within the political system through the quote-unquote public sector. And you will see Elon Musk to continue to push this from outside, from the so-called private sector. But the guy behind the scenes, the puppet master lurking in the shadows on this, would be Peter Thiel. Now, who does he work for? Who does he answer to? That, I'm not sure of. But I'm telling you, folks, all of the pieces from all these stories and all these reports tie together. And this all fits in to what we've been talking about for the last 71 episodes, 72 episodes, whatever it is, is technocratic transhumanism. Because that is the governing ideology behind this entire system. So as they continue to push forward, as they normalize these ideas, as they desensitize people to this stuff, as they get people to hate and be disgusted with the government more and more, the idea of constitutional uh, representative government will be thrown out the window and a technocracy will be installed. And they are going to use some of the tricks, some of the loopholes written into our government like unitary executive theory to do this. But the idea behind it is a complete and total coup. Ladies and gentlemen, they will install the technocracy. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard. Thank you for listening to pain.tv slash gold. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold.